Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And go ahead and turn there. And uh, I just want to say what an amazing time of worship it's been already this morning. And I've pretty much determined that I think we need to have just like an acoustic worship morning like once every six weeks or something. Because uh, I, love, I love the simplicity of that. Um, don't tell the rest of the praise band I said that. They're fine. We like them. They're all right. But, uh, you know, there's something about just hearing the voices of God's people singing praises unto him. I've always said that as much as I love praise and worship and hymns and all that we do, uh, all the different musical instruments that get brought into worship, it's all wonderful and it's all has its place. But I, there's something about just for me hearing the voices of God's people. And, uh, you know, people always say, well, my preference is this, my preference is that. I've always said if I could choose to do church music the way that I would prefer to do it, um, not that I don't enjoy instruments, but I would probably just do a cappella all the time. And not because you want to hear my voice, because you don't want to hear my voice. I appreciate the instruments drowning out my singing. Um, but I just, I love hearing the voices of God's people praise him. And so thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We do appreciate it. And I pray that you have been blessed by it. Uh, Luke chapter 2, we're going to get to some verses in just a moment. Um, but this morning we're finishing up our uh, This Changes Everything series. And we began this back in the second week of December. And we started looking at all the ways that Christ's coming changes us, changes family, changes all the different areas of eternity. And I pray that as we're kind of wrapping up this series, that you've seen God encourage you in some way to be reminded or affirmed or maybe even newly encouraged that you have been changed by the coming of Christ, that our world has been changed by the coming of Christ. Uh, I believe every time that we are before the Word of God, that God is working. And so this morning I pray that as we understand that we are changed by Christ's coming and His coming into our lives as Savior, I pray that we would understand that when we open up the Word of God that we are changed every single time we're before God's Word. Uh, that every time we get before His Word, we can be changed and it can change us. I love this quote, and I want to share this to kind of get us on that track this morning. Uh, Dr. Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, said it this way, because the Bible is the ultimate source of truth. That's an amazing statement, is it not? Because the Bible is the ultimate source of truth, it is inerrant and infallible. That means it is without error and without mistake. There is no fault or failure in the Word of God. It is perfect. He goes on to say this, the Bible changes you and others. Any time invested in the Bible produces a return. I love that. Any time invested in the Bible produces a return. Sometimes our devotional life can feel like that's not true though, right? You ever spend time in your devotional life reading a passage of scripture, get to the end and go, what did I just read? Anybody ever been there? You get to the end of your Bible time and you think that was great. You pray, you go about your day and maybe about lunchtime you try to remember what you read and you can't really quite remember what it was. I mean, we all can fall into those kind of things. And so it's not saying we should beat ourselves up if we don't remember every single word we read and all of this because sometimes our days get busy. Sometimes we read first thing in the morning, we're still a little groggy, right? Everything's not quite sinking in like it should. So what is it saying there? It's saying that when I put time into the Word of God, when I allow the Word of God to really invest in me, is maybe how we should say it, I'm actually changed. There's a return. Something is made new in me. And now I can know there's a difference in me. And not because of me, but because of the power of God's word to speak into my heart and my life. Last week we spoke about the reality that through Christ's coming, we are changed. We ourselves are changed. 
He changes us by adopting us into his family and by revealing to us not just a commandment of love, but gave us a demonstration of love. I want us to get that. He didn't just change the understanding of love for us by telling us to love. He, he did that all the way back in the Old Testament. God's always been a God that says to love, to love, to love, to love in works, to love in deed, to love in word. But, but when Christ came, it was different. He said, I want you to love as I've loved. I want you to love one another as you've seen me love one another. And so he gave us not only the commandment to love, but the demonstration of love. This morning, I want us to see that his coming changes purpose. His coming changes purpose. It changes family. It changes love. It changes us, right? It changes you and I, but it also changes purpose. And what do we mean by that? Well, I want to go back to Luke chapter 2. We were in this passage last week, and I want to read just a couple of verses to get us back into the, the mindset of this context here. So look at verse 17. So Luke 2 and verse 17. It says here, and when they had seen it, these being the shepherds, had seen the baby that was prophesied, or rather declared to them, not prophesied, but declared to them uh, that the angels came and said, there will be a baby, you can find him, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. They went and said, let's go see if this thing is true. Let's go investigate this thing. Verse 17 says, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we ask that we would be changed by the reading of your word, that your word would speak into our lives and our hearts and our minds. Lord, I know that many in this room probably have been in church for many years. They've heard Bible stories, maybe even this passage before. But I pray, Lord, that as they are before the Word of God, that it would be, although not brand new to them because they've read it before, but it would be like it's brand new. That we would get to a point where opening up your Word would be enjoyable and exciting, Lord, because we know we need to hear from you. That it would very much change us and that it would create within us a return. Somehow we would be changed in a way of that, that we'd live differently and we would live in a practical way differently before you and before others. Father, be with us now, Lord, and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we read this story, there's something we have to note. I cannot help but notice the way the story ends, the way the story kind of concludes in regards to the shepherds. Following the visit to Christ, they made known all over what the angels had told them and revealed to them about who Christ was. What are they doing? We talked about this last week. What are the... What are the shepherds doing? They're putting into practice what the angels said, right? The angels said this would be good news, right, of what? Glad tidings. You guys can help out a little bit this morning. And what did we say glad tidings meant? It wasn't just news that was proclaimed. It was what? It was news that was repeated over and over again. That for generation upon generation upon generation, this news would continue to go forth. And who is this good news that's continued to be proclaimed for? For just a select group of people? It says for all people. That means that person you can't stand? Okay, that person or persons, if you're like some, there's many people you can't stand. Maybe you have a list of people you can't stand. I don't know, okay? That sounds a little kind of sad, but anyway, a um, little depressing. 
Um, maybe you have general people you can't stand, like people who can't drive. You don't know them specifically or really, you know, personally, but if you can't drive, you're on my list, okay? Um, people that get into the self-checkout, right, the little screen thing with like a basket full of things, when we all know that's, unless it's the one with the belt now, they got the belt one, but if it's the little screen, little counter, right, there's a reason at the self-checkout, the little ones, the counter is this big, why is the little counter this big that you're supposed to put your stuff on? Because it's meant for a few things, right? It's not meant for a whole shopping cart full of things. Just saying, okay? So if that's you, I'm not saying I don't like you, but you've angered me at times, okay? If that's you, okay? Just saying. That person, any person you can imagine that you don't like, this news is for them. That person that sins differently than you, this news is for them. The person that sins a sin that you can't even imagine, the sin that just turns your stomach, the sin that you just can't, it just makes you angry to think about someone doing that to someone else, that person, they're all people. The news is for them. They can choose to accept it or reject it, but the news is for them. And so here we see this kind of wrapping up here, right? They see these shepherds are told this great news, and they go out, and what do they do? They start telling all people. They're putting into practice the good news they received. It's glad tidings. We're going to tell everybody we can. No matter where we are or what we're doing, we're going to make this message known. Then what do the shepherds do? Well, look what the Bible says. The Bible leaves us kind of hanging. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned. Returned where? Where, where did they return to? What, did, what, did, what does that mean that they returned? Returned back to where? Okay, back to the fields, to the flocks, to what they were doing, right? Before the angel showed up, okay? So they go, they find Jesus, they see the child, they, they worship God, they're praising God, they're going around testifying all they can, and yet they just go back to what they were doing. They just go back to the fields. They just returned. And what I want us to note here is I think there's a lot in there for us today. I want you to notice that they went back to their routine, they went back to just their normal life. But I want to make sure we know they were anything but normal at this point. They left in one state and they returned in a whole different state, in a whole different disposition. They went back to what they were doing before, but I believe they were completely and utterly changed. To understand how our purpose is changed, I want us to understand what it means to be changed. I want to kind of unpack a little more from last week and give you some examples. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to take notes. And you guys know my statistics on this. Some of you maybe forgot, but statistics say that 90% of people who take notes in church, what? Go to heaven. That's right, okay? That's what statistics say. 90% of people who take notes in church go to heaven. So it's not my thing. It's just what statistics say, okay? So some of you maybe haven't heard that one before. I've said it quite a bit. And so in six months when I say it again, you'll be on the, on the joke now. You'll be in, okay? You're part of the in crowd now, okay? And anyone that wasn't here this morning, they won't get it, but that's okay. We'll just make fun of them. Okay, so just kidding. So what I want to understand on this is that when we talk about this idea of changing our purpose, that our purpose is changed, we have to understand what it means to be changed individually first. You see, the first thing we have to note is that it all starts with an encounter with Christ, it all starts with an encounter with Christ. When we are face-to-face -face with Christ, everything changes. When you are face-to-face -face with Christ, everything changes. We cannot encounter the divine and not be changed. 
We said this last week. When humanity is confronted with divinity, there's one result. What, is the, what did the shepherds do when they first saw the angel? They were sore afraid. Why do we say they were afraid? Because they were instantly aware of their sin, and they believed that angel was coming to kill them. Because they knew not only were they sinful and wretched, they, did, they understood and knew they deserved wrath. They deserved judgment. See, we can mask, we can hide, we can project, we can do all kinds of things to cover our sin. But when we are face-to-face with the divine, all those things melt away. And now we're just exposed. This is why I said it last week. They didn't whip out a, a list of questions for the angel. You know, it's kind of funny. We asked... I asked my son Josiah, actually Sandra did this week. We were kind of asking each other some of those questions. I said as a joke last week about, you know, did Adam have a belly button, you know, or those kind of things that you don't see the shepherds asking those questions of the angel. They were just afraid. And it's kind of funny when, when Sandra asked Josiah, I answered the question first, joking around with Sandra. And then when she asked Josiah, Josiah said, well, no, he did not. And she's like, well, how do you know that? He said, because I heard dad say that. I was like, great, he's a preacher's kid. He's already, he has no idea. I'm just going to go by what dad says. So, but when you think about this, when, when humanity is confronted with the divine, we are changed, whether for the better or the worse, right? We are changed. We are never the same. That change, again, may be for good or bad. But when we are face-to-face with Christ, in that moment, we are never the same following that encounter. I want to give you some examples of this, of just some people that were changed Just in a quick overview, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you some example of who was changed and then a verse you can find maybe speaking to how they were changed by an encounter with Christ. And so I'm going to give you these. We're not going to read all these verses for time's sake, but I would encourage you to write them down again if you're taking notes. So first example we want to look at is the example of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, Luke 141, you can jot that down, Luke 141. Uh, This is while John is still in the womb. Now, remember, John the Baptist was not really a Baptist, right? We know this, okay? Why was he called John the Baptist? Because he baptized, okay? He wasn't a Baptist as we know what the Baptist church is. But John the Baptist was changed from an encounter with Christ. The Bible says he was in the womb. Mary comes in the room. And what did John do? He leapt in the womb, right? He jumped in the womb. Now, some of you that have been moms, okay, you understand that's not always a pleasant feeling, right? When the kid's like elbowing your like bladder, right? That's always a good feeling, okay? Hey, mom, got to pee yet? Got to pee yet, right? Let me push on this some more. You got to pee yet, okay? Okay, we know that's not always a fun thing, but why did John leap in the womb? Because he was within the presence, right, of Mary and what would be Jesus Christ. Obviously, he would know Jesus Christ later, but, but he understands that the Spirit was working there. So we see John was changed in the womb, but also we see in the wilderness John is changed, right? When Jesus comes to be baptized, when Jesus comes to be baptized, John is changed. He says, no, 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 I would that you should baptize me. But he has the blessed opportunity to baptize the Savior, to baptize Christ. Totally changed following that. Another example we read already was the shepherds in Luke 2.17. We read it, but let's look at it again. It says, when they see it, they may know in abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. They were changed. They instantly had to make it known. And then it also says they glorified God. They were changed. The wise men in Matthew 2, 11, when they were face to face with Christ, what did they do? They fell down and worshiped him. They gave him gifts and treasures. They were changed. Simeon and Anna in Luke 2, 25 through 38, 
Luke 2, 25 through 38, we see Simeon and Anna were changed at the appearance of Christ. We know this story. We've read this possibly sometimes, maybe often, that Simeon's on the stairs of the temple. He's confronted with Christ, and he lifts up Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen the salvation of, of your people. My eyes have seen salvation. I've seen the Messiah. We see Anna is changed and made new in her encounter with Christ. We see also the religious leaders in the temple. The religious leaders in the temple, Luke 2, 46 through 47. We see a child, Jesus, sitting there asking questions and answering questions. And what does the Bible say? They were astonished. They were amazed at all that Jesus knew. They were changed. Following that encounter, let me ask you a question. Do you think six weeks later, four weeks later, they were sitting around the temple still talking about that child that knew all the answers? You think they were like, this is a little odd? We've never had someone of this age speak to us this way with such authority and knowledge of God's word and and who God is? I don't think they were ever the same. I think they sat for months talking about that. They were changed. They had an encounter with Christ. John and Andrew in John 1, 37. John and Andrew in John 1, 37. The first two followers of Christ, if you will, the first two disciples, we see that as well as not only these two, but also the rest of the disciples were changed by their encounters with Christ. And you can read it. We don't read of all the disciples and how they came to follow Christ, but read of a handful, one of which was actually, he was prejudiced. He said nothing good could come from Nazareth. He has a face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and he's changed. His whole image, his whole mindset is changed. Nicodemus in John 3.3, we know he's changed because he's told what? In John 3.3, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, how in the world does that happen? Do I enter the second time into my mother's womb? Jesus says, no. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. And he understands this whole thing. Till well, later on in the Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus standing on behalf of Christ. So we see he was changed. He was made different. The Samaritan woman in John 4, 28 and 29, she was made different. What does the Bible say? That after she knew who Christ was, she left her water pot and went out into the city and began to say, come see a man that's told me all things whatsoever I've done. She was changed. She went to get water and she left to testify of the Savior. The sick or possessed throughout all of the Gospels, one example being Luke 4.15. Imagine the sick or the possessed, those that lived with these illnesses or these possessions of demons, and yet when they came in encounter with Christ, they were changed, they were made new and different. The multitudes, Matthew 7.28 and 8.1. Matthew 7.28 and 8.1 in the same In in Matthew's gospel there, we see this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus just taught the Sermon on the Mount, which to this day is still one of the hardest things for us to understand and more or less apply, which again, I don't think we really can apply it until we're in Christ. But you see what follows that Sermon on the Mount. The crowds were left astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. They couldn't believe all that he had taught them. How about the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 22? Mark 10, 22, we see this young man come to Christ and say, what do I got to do to be saved? Jesus says, what does it say in the law? And the guy responds with what? I've done all that since I was a child. Just arrogant, prideful, boasting in himself. Jesus says, I'll tell you what you have to do. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Is that because money is bad? Is wealth bad? What was the problem with this young man? His God was his money. His God was his wealth. What is the very first commandment? Have what? No other gods before me. Jesus gave him law. What does the law say? The guy says, I've done that. Then Jesus points out, no, you haven't. In fact, you're serving your wealth. 
He goes on to explain this later in another passage. You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. See, this guy's God was his wealth. And again, we might think, yeah, those rich people have that problem. Not like us common people, you know, it's those rich Bill Gates type people. Remember, in the global scheme, you're very wealthy. Remember, like two-thirds of the world lives on less than $2 a day. And ma- or I should say makes less than $2 a day. So in the global scheme, you're quite wealthy. So when we look at passages like that, don't go, well, yeah, those wealthy ones over there. Maybe we need to go, well, yeah, us wealthy ones right here. Is my God my comfort and my money and my possessions? Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it unto the poor. What's amazing is, and I've always loved this, what happens in the book of Acts? The disciples come together, early church, what do they do? They sell all they have, put it in a giant pot, if you will, a giant collection, and say what? Here, apostles, give it to those in need. They sold their land and their own possessions. Isn't it amazing? They did out of choice what the rich young ruler wouldn't do out of command. Jesus said, do this. The guy, it says he left sad because he had great wealth. The disciples early in the early church, they do it because they want to. Jesus never even had to tell them to do it. See, that's the difference between someone that's in their pride and in their sin and trying to look for a way to do this work to get to heaven and somebody that truly knows Christ. Because we just have a desire to please him in all these things. So the rich young ruler, whether for good or bad, was changed by this encounter. It says he left sad. The poor and neglected, Matthew eleven five. 5, we find out that Jesus speaking to John's disciples. John's in prison now at this point. John says, hey, do I need to send for another or are you the Messiah? Jesus tells the disciples, this, tell John this is what I'm doing. One of the key things he focuses on is that he preaches the gospel to the poor. He's ministering to the poor. In that culture, in that day, if you were poor, you were neglected. Nobody wanted anything to do with you. Nobody cared about you. Jesus said, hey, make sure you tell them, I care for the poor. I'm ministering to the poor. So in that culture, if you were poor and neglected, you were loved by Christ. You were changed. How about Martha, the sister of Lazarus in John 11, 25 through 27? Martha, the sister of Lazarus in John 11, 25 through 27. I think she was changed after this encounter with Christ. Lazarus has died. Jesus shows up. What's Martha saying? Where were you? Just be real for a second, and I can raise my hand. I've prayed this prayer. Anybody prayed, God, where are you? You didn't show up when you were supposed to? Anybody prayed that prayer? Anybody been mad at God before? You've been mad at God before? Raise your hand. Okay, most of us have had moments like that. God, where were you? If you were here, he would have not died. He would have lived. And Jesus after spending time just consoling her, says what? I am the resurrection and the life. And she testifies. She says, yes, I believe in the resurrection to come. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about the future resurrection. I'm talking about what? That I can resurrect him right now. So we see Martha was changed. Her whole image of Christ changed in that moment. Then we can't help but mention Lazarus. I mean, you want to talk about change. Dead, alive. You can't get much more change than that, okay? What's the beauty of that? What does Ephesians 2 say? That Jesus Christ has quickened us. You know what that means? Made us alive. That we were dead and now we are alive. And then one last example, and again, these are not exhaustive, but, or not an exhaustive list, but the Apostle Paul, Acts 9, 6. He finally cries out, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? the greatest persecutor of the early church, the greatest persecutor of Christians, imprisoned, tortured, 
oversaw the stoning of Stephen, and yet has an encounter with Christ and becomes the greatest missionary the New Testament ever known, has ever known. Planted churches in places where there was no church. And all because he had an encounter with Christ. What do all these things have in common? What do all these things share? Different people, backgrounds, social status, genders, everything. Religious backgrounds. The only thing they have in common is Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, encountered these individuals right where they were, just as they were. we got to get that. Jesus Christ encountered these individuals right where they were, just as they were. He gave them truth and grace. He gave him, them his word. And as a result, they were never the same again. So can I encourage you to maybe take a moment and praise the Lord that Jesus Christ invaded our humanity, came to us when we were unlovable, invaded your life, gave you opportunity to know Christ. Now you know Christ and you've been changed for all eternity. Can you praise God for just a moment that when you were without purpose, he came to you and changed you and gave you life eternal because he loves you that much. Amen? And his grace has come to you and you have been made new. You see, when we encounter Christ, not only are we changed, but Christ redefines our purpose. Christ redefines our purpose. I want to note this. If you go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. Was that really loud, that drink? Because it felt like it was really loud. I heard a lot of gloop come back at me. So I don't really like drinking water while I'm speaking because I'm a loud swallower, apparently. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. They returned, yes, they went back to normal, but they did not go back in the same state, in the same mindset. They returned, glorifying and praising God. You see, Christ redefines our purpose as an individual. We see him do this once we are changed. The shepherds seem to just go back to normal, go back to work, but it's not the case. They're glorifying God. When we encounter Christ through the gospel, God may leave us in the same career. Hear me now. Some of us need to get this. He may leave us in the same career, the same community, and of course, we will remain in the same family. You may encounter Christ. Come to know Christ as your Savior. You've received the gospel. You know what it is to be saved. You know him, and you're following him passionately. And he may leave you right where you are. Some of us, he may call and open a door of opportunity to go be a missionary somewhere. Maybe you'll be called to go to another country and serve. I truly believe there are many of us that are called. And it's something that I have shared openly about before. I prayed long and hard about this when I was in college. We had opportunities. I've had opportunities to go to different mission fields. Every time I'm on a mission field, I pray the same thing. Lord, is this where you want me to come? Like, is this where I'm supposed to be? I know I'm here for 10 days, but Lord, is this where I'm supposed to move my family to? When I was not even married, Sandra and I had a chance. We were in the college class, went to Mexico. In Mexico, I remember praying, God, do you want me to be a missionary in Mexico? Is that what I'm supposed to do? And now I believed I was going to be in ministry in, in, in Lapeer County and at North Goodland. I believe I was going to be the, the youth pastor here or be in ministry here in some way. But I didn't know that for sure. So I just prayed, God, is this where you want me to go? Because I'll, I'll go if you want me to go. Sometimes I think we have to be willing just to pray that prayer. Some of us, we won't even think about praying that prayer. 
Some of us, the idea of going to a different country is so foreign, we would never entertain the idea of even opening the door of prayer to say, God, do you want me to move somewhere? And why is that? Because we're fearful that God's going to send us where? Where we don't want to go. God's going to send us to Siberia. We actually had a guy come from that region to BBC when I was in college and speak. And when he said that, he said, you know, I used to pray, God, I don't want to go to Siberia if I become a missionary. And that's where God sent me. And he said, but it's the greatest thing. I love the people there. I I, I don't want to be anywhere else. I'm so glad he sent me here. See, the reason we don't pray that prayer and the reason we think God will send us where we don't want to go is because maybe deep down inside we don't really trust that he is good. Because if you think God's going to send you somewhere just to be vindictive and just to be mean, man, you have a wrong image of your God. When we open the door to say, God, I'll go wherever you want, maybe believe that where he wants you to go and where he's going to send you to go is where you need to go. And it's the best place for you to go. For me, I never believed the Lord was leading me that way. Doors never opened that way, no matter how much I prayed about it or opened that that opportunity. This was always where God had me. But for many of us, God may call us if we open the door and say, God, I'll go. Are we even willing? I'm not saying you have to go to Africa or wherever, but are you even willing to entertain the thought, God, I'll, I'll go if you want me to go? Sandra and I were just talking um, just through communicating with our missionary in the Philippines, Brother Tika, and just sharing with him about what we were sending to help him financially and all of that for his building. He sent back the, one of the last messages he sent back because he's a missionary, and this is what missionaries do. Um, he ended it with, and maybe the Hodges could even attest to this, he said, it'd be great to have a group come soon to visit us in the Philippines. And I think every missionary ends their emails with that because you know what missionaries really need? Help. They need support. And maybe we can only do a 10-day trip, but you don't even know how much that can make a difference in a missionary's life. And not even for the work in the field, but some of these missionaries, especially if they're state, state missionaries that have now gone overseas, just having other Americans to talk with is what I've heard people say. Just having other Americans to just have a conversation with and not have to worry about trying to say things right and cultural things. And he said, man, we'd love to have a group come. And Sandra and I started talking. We've always wanted to go to the Philippines and do a missions trip. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I would love for our church to take a trip sometime soon, maybe the next year or two, a couple years, and say, let's go to the Philippines. Let's see what God can do in our lives. Maybe somebody here would say, you know what? I'm going to take it a step farther. I don't want to just go on a little short-term trip. Man, I believe God's calling me to be a missionary in the Philippines. And how cool would it be if you went with us as a group and then on the field, God affirmed that, and then you said, you know what? I'm going to go home to raise some support and come right back. You know, our church, there's the C's out here on our missionary wall. Uh, the C's and the Abrams came out of North Goodland Baptist Church back in the 60s. We were their sending church. Do you know, however, since the 60s, 70s, we've not sent missionaries out from our church? We've supported them. We've come alongside them. We've, we've walked with missionaries for decades. But you know, it's been since that point in our church history that we've actually, somebody in our church, raised up in our church, saved in our church, discipled in our church, went out of our church to be a missionary. It's been that long. I don't like that. I'm praying God will change that. I'm praying God will raise someone up and we'll be able to say, not so we can pat ourselves on the back, but we can say, man, this is what God is doing at North Goodland, that we can be a part of that global outreach. So maybe God is calling you to go be a missionary somewhere, but maybe you're like the shepherds and you just go back to work. See, in a couple of weeks, well, for some of us, maybe even this week, you're going to go back to work. Christmas breaks over. Uh, what, another week? The kids go back to school and all the children said, amen, right? All the teens were like, I can't wait to get back to calculus. Woo! 
Woo! Okay. Right, sure. Uh Uh-huh, okay. Some of you like the social life better than the school life. I understand that. But we're going to go back to work. We're going to go back to normal. And Christmas will be just another holiday in the past. Yeah, it was great to talk about how he changes us, but we're just going to go back to normal. We're just going to go back to what we always do. Can I encourage you with something? Go back to work different than when you left for break. Go back to school. To all the kids, teens in here, students in here, hear me now. Go back to school different than when you left for break. Talk to your teachers differently than you used to talk to your teachers. Love on your classmates different than you used to. That student or students that nobody seems to talk to, they just hang out by their locker by themselves, be a change maker by going and talking to them. Just go ask them how their day's going. Have lunch with them. I'm telling you, you will see a huge move in your school if you will just do the little things like that. Go back to school different than when you left for break. Go back to work different than when you left for break because our purpose as an individual has changed. You see, although everything might be the same, these things don't really need to change. Your career doesn't need to change. Your community doesn't need to change. Your home doesn't need to change. Where you live doesn't need to change because you've been changed. And once we've been changed, now we see the opportunities that existed in all those areas for us to make an impact for Christ. And it's always been there. But now we see it because we've been changed. You see, my individual purpose goes from self-centered to Christ-centered. Once I've been changed by Christ, my individual purpose goes from self-centered to Christ-centered. I am no longer following my vision for my life, but I am passionately following Christ and his desires for my life. Now, this is where we may say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. That's usually the response we get when we have something, a comment like this. Now, while I understand that that question is speaking to the bigger picture, I don't know what God's will is for my life, big picture. I don't know what I'm supposed to do the next 50 years of my life. Let me encourage you with something. Stop worrying about 50 years from now. Focus on today. What is God's will for my life today? I understand we don't always know the big picture, but we do know from his word, again, because we're invested in the word of God, and it invests in us and it changes us, we can know what our everyday purpose is as an individual. We are all called to pray. Everyone in this room, if you know Christ, you're called to pray. So let me just ask you real quick. We're going to wrap up here in a little bit, but let me ask you real quick. Don't raise your hand. But how many of us would honestly say our prayer life needs to improve? Don't raise your hand. But how many of us would honestly say, man, my prayer life needs to grow? If your prayer life consists of, and there's nothing wrong with this, but if it's only praying for food before you consume it, your prayer life may need to grow. I mean, do we pray for others the way we're called to pray for others? Do we pray for our leaders? Hey, listen, you want to know when we should be praying for our leaders? Uh, There's no better time than right now. Well, I don't like so-and-so. I don't like our president. I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy. What's amazing is nowhere in the Bible does it say, pray for those you like and agree with. Pray for your leaders, the Bible says. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your family. You want to see your children grow up to know the Lord and be strong in the Lord? Invest in them spiritually by praying for them. Pray for your spouse. I mean, you know, it's amazing. You want to know how to get over conflict with your spouse? Pray for them. Now, don't do what some do and pray for them. As in like, Lord, you need to fix this. You need to fix this. You need to fix this. Because your heart is so hard in that moment, he ain't hearing it, okay? But maybe you'd pray, you know what, Lord? Help me to be a better spouse for my husband or wife. 
Help me to know how to love them in a way that's going to help them to know that I love them. If there's something going on in their life right now, which I, I pray that you would just restore to them just an understanding of your joy if they're, if they're down. Man, pray for them in a Christ-like way. All of us are called to pray. All of us are called to study. Now, I know some in the room, you may think, well, some of those immature Christians need to study. But I, I know the Bible. I know that I know. I mean, I know it. You know, Paul says at the end of his life, I just want to know the power of Christ and his resurrection. I just want to, I want to know and understand. This is Paul at the end of his life says, I just want to know more about the resurrection of Christ. Do you think Paul knew the word of God? Do you think Paul was pretty advanced, pretty mature, pretty grown in his faith? But he says at the end of his life, I just want to know more. The biggest stumbling block to your growth as a believer is to believe that you've already arrived. And we haven't arrived. We are all called to study. We're all called to get into God's word and to give ourselves to God's word. We're all called to grow in the knowledge of the grace of God. We're all called to reach others for Christ. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to serve. We're all called to love. You see, you don't know your big picture will of God for your life. That's fine. God will only usually reveal that as you're doing the things that he's calling you to do today. You see, my whole purpose of living is redefined. When I receive Christ as my Savior, my whole purpose for living is redefined. I don't know if that's true for all of us. I think it's something we all want to be true. I can be honest and transparent and say it's not always been true for me. There's been times in my life where I've gotten my own stuff in the way. I thought it was this and because it's what I wanted. But man, we need to be passionately consumed with the, the, will, the will and the purpose <coughs> excuse me, of Christ. <clears throat> but not only does Christ redefine our purpose as an individual, finally, Christ redefines our purpose as a church. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to look at one verse, a simple verse, but one that I believe really encourages us with the right mindset as Christ redefines our purpose as a church. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 21. Now this is at the end of, or rather following, one, a verse that is very, very popular. Uh, verse 20 is extremely popular. And uh, we'll put this at the end of cards or graduation cards or things like this. It says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. We love that verse. Oh man, he can do anything in us. He can work these great things. Anything I can imagine, he can do it. Anything I can dream of, he can do it. And we'll put it at the end of cards and we'll encourage people with it. And we'll, we'll hear it preach that I can pray these big dream prayers, right? Like God's going to give me a Lamborghini because he can do all things whatsoever I ask in his name. And man, this stuff will preach. It's all over TV. Right? Sounds good. But that's not really the point of what he's saying here. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing above and beyond all that we ask or think? Why does he do these things and work this power in us? Notice verse 20 does not end in a period. It ends in a comma. What does that mean? The thought continues. Verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church. Unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Amen. We've said this before. Amen at the end is like verily, verily at the beginning. 
It basically means, and so let it be, let it go forth. It's a way of proclaiming what was just said is true, so let it go forth. Let it be true in our lives. Why is verse 20 possible? Why does he do these things? Why does he do above and beyond all that we ask or think? So that he'll be glorified in the church, that will glorify him, that will lift him up. It's all about promoting him. You see, Christ redefines our purpose as an individual, but he also redefines our purpose as a church. The point of the church is to glorify God. The point of gathering today is to glorify God. That's the purpose of the church, to glorify the Savior, to glorify the head of the church, Jesus Christ, to lift him up. Amen? And that's why we're here. Listen, if we're here for anything else, we're wasting our time. Uh, the purpose of the church is to glorify him. This takes place when we as individuals encounter Christ and live in our purpose. As I am living in a redefined purpose, glorifying God in my own life, when we come together as the body of Christ, the natural overflow is we will glorify him. That is why our music glorifies Christ. It puts him on center stage. That's why our preaching promotes him and his word. Our lives should reflect the glory of God. Notice the difference with the shepherds is that they glorified God. That was the difference in the shepherds' lives. They went back to the same old job, the same old fields, the same old smelly sheep, right? What's the difference? They glorified God. Their whole view of life was different because they glorified God. In today's Christian world, the purpose of the church, not in all churches, but on a, a big, on a massive scale, from, in my opinion, I've seen that the purpose of the church has shifted from Christ-centered to congregation-centered. The purpose of the church has shifted from Christ-centered to congregation-centered. Now, obviously, church involves the people, but the key is that we gather for him. We gather for him. This is why so many churches and so many pastors hear me now, burn themselves out trying to convince Christians to stay in the church. There's something really wrong with that statement. So many churches are spending so much money on trying to convince Christians that they should stay in this local church versus that local church. There are seminars and conferences that you can go to that will teach you how to get people to volunteer in church. Let that sink in for a moment. I have to go as a pastor to a conference to be taught strategies to convince Christians to volunteer in church. Where have we come as a church, as a church culture, that I have to go to this seminar, pay $200 to have these guys teach me these seven tips and tricks to get people to convince them to serve. And we're not talking about believers. We're not talking about people that are no, we're talking about believers. Because it's shifted to congregation-centered, not Christ-centered. Now again, I believe our church, I've always said this, I think our church is unique in good ways and bad ways. But no, I'm just kidding. Vic's not in here, so I can say that, okay? He's out in the hallway, I think, monitoring. So, but when you think about this, like uh, so many churches, are that, I don't believe our church is that way. I do believe our church is Christ-centered. Understand what I'm saying? But I'm thinking big picture here. We've seen this shift in churches all across our country. The truth is we will be blessed. 
we will be encouraged, we will be strengthened and served and so on with many, many blessings as an individual, as a congregation, when we gather as the church to worship him. If I come, and I'm in Christ, if I come together as the body of Christ for selfish reasons of what I get out of it, then I'm actually living out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. I want to read this to you. We looked at this, I think it was maybe a month or two ago in our men's prayer breakfast. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen says this, Now in this, that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. It says, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but the worse. Paul's speaking in context here to the selfish attitude of some in the church. Before partaking in the Lord's Supper, they were coming together with selfish desire, selfish wants. They were gathering together, right? They were coming together for church, and they were doing the thing. We're supposed to go to church. We're going to church. But they were so selfishly driven and all about consuming what they wanted, what they got out of it. They didn't care about the poor or the impoverished that were with them that couldn't have the meal that they were just having. They didn't care about that. They wanted what they wanted. And Paul, in speaking to this, says, you know, yeah, you come together, but it's actually for the worse, not the better. You know what Paul's basically saying in this passage? I'd rather you not come at all. I'd rather you just stay home. Don't even go to church if you're going to come with that heart and that mindset because you're not really doing any good. Now, we'll dive into this more in the next week or two as we kind of really step into for the new year, kind of unpacking our purpose as a church in Lapeer County and then how we as a church plan on and desire to please and glorify God in the coming year in Lapeer County. But I want us to know that this morning we have to come to the point of understanding that this church exists solely to glorify God, period. It is his church. It is his body. So therefore, we should be all about his glory. So as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we see that his coming literally changes everything. It changes family because we are adopted into the body of Christ. It changes love, which he demonstrated for us. It changes me. I am altogether different and new. And it changes our purpose for our life. An encounter with Christ will change us. If we submit and receive his gospel, it is a great change. It is a glorious change. You are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You have a relationship with God, your creator, and you'll spend eternity with him in his heaven. It is an amazing change. But if we reject and rebel, refusing to follow him, then it will produce sorrow and grief. Ultimately, it will produce judgment, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. My question for you is, have you been changed by Christ? Do you know him as your savior? Have you had an encounter with Christ? And are you different because of it? Maybe when you were a kid or a young person, you prayed a prayer, but you really don't know what you prayed. You really don't know what you were saying. You really don't remember any of it. It's kind of, you did it maybe because you felt pressure to do it. You did it because other people were doing it. But you yourself, you've never for yourself believed and trusted in the person of Jesus Christ. Then my challenge to you is this. Will you receive Christ today? <clears throat> not a denomination, not a religion, not something that we all do because it's part of what we do at church, but will you individually be changed by Christ by receiving him as Savior? And if so, will you be changed by it? Maybe you know Christ today. Maybe you've been changed by Christ. You know the difference he can make in your life. 
But if you're honest, this last year you've drifted and your purpose has been more self-centered than Christ-centered. We say it's Christ-centered, but we really live out self-centered purpose. Maybe you would come this morning, bend a knee at the altar or there in your seats and say, Lord, I want my purpose to be about you and what you have for me so that you would be glorified in my life individually and as a church. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we have a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you today. We're so thankful for your gospel. We're so thankful for the difference that you've made in our lives. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come to know you before it's everlasting too late. Father, they would come and bend a knee and say, Lord, I submit to you. I, I, I repent of my sins. I know that I've done wrong but I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried and rose again. And I believe that putting my faith and trust in you and in your word guarantees me eternal life and a relationship with you. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their savior, I pray that you, as only you can, by the working of your Holy Spirit, would prick their hearts and open their minds to the need of of the gospel. Lord, we're all sinners. We all know we've done wrong. I pray that we would just understand by your working, leading, and guiding, what to do with that sin, that we can confess and repent and trust in you as Savior. Father, for the believers here today that have been changed by the person of Christ, that when I read these examples of different people that have been changed, people that you met right where they are, where they were, just as they were, that we can relate to that because we know when, when you met us where we were, that we were undone in our sin and you came to us in your love. You saved us and redeemed us, strengthened us. And Lord, maybe for a season we walked in that new purpose, we walked following you, but maybe in this last year or even these last few months or weeks or days, our purpose has shifted away from you and onto self. I pray that we'd be renewed in our thinking to know that our purpose is redefined by you and that we can glorify you in all things. And so I pray that's what we would do today, Lord, as individuals, and as a church, as a body, that we would glorify you in all things. Thank you for this time this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a song of invitation? Would you respond as the Lord is led? Maybe you want to come and pray. Maybe you want to come and pray for the new year. You want to pray for the Lord to open your hearts and minds to what he has for you, for opportunities to serve him and glorify him. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as we sing?